Welcome aboard the uh, Fair Mormon Podcast. I'm Ned Skarsbrick, your host, and today we have a special guest, Brother Alonzo Gaskell. Welcome aboard the uh, Fair Mormon Podcast, Brother Gaskell. Thanks so much for having me, Ned. Yeah, it's great. How about uh, we start by giving our listeners a brief history of yourself and uh, what motivated you to write this book? Okay. Uh, well, uh, you know, I grew up uh, just outside of Independence, Missouri as a, a Greek Orthodox kid. Uh, ended up uh, converting to the church uh, my freshman year of college and uh, uh, served a mission about a year later. Uh, came back and uh, was actually on my mission. I decided to uh, uh, switch majors and uh, teach religion for a living. I'd I had a long-standing uh, goal to be a mortician, of all things. Really? That's interesting. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of crazy. But we, uh, I had a retired BYU professor and his wife that were serving as missionaries in our, uh, in our mission and uh, had uh, approached me. And uh, I don't know if it was a mission conference, uh, uh, something I was speaking in. And he had said, have you ever thought about teaching? I said, have you ever thought about eating? <laughs> I, uh, I can't live off of a teacher's salary and kind of dismissed him. But he encouraged me to think about that. And I could not get that on my mind. Anyway, so I came back. Uh, finished my degree, switched uh, switched degrees to a philosophy, and uh, uh, took a job uh, teaching seminary in southeastern Idaho, so not too far from your neck of the woods. Uh, my goodness, so you got a degree in philosophy. How do you feel about that? <laughs> well, uh, uh, itching ears, ever learning and never coming to a knowledge of the truth. You know, it's uh, one of those fields where I, it was often frustrating because we were talking about God all the time, but we weren't allowed to decide anything. Anyway, yeah. so I, I taught seminary uh, for uh, four years in southeastern Idaho, then uh, took a position as an institute director on the West Coast for about eight years, and then have been in BYU for a decade or so, actually a bit longer than that, and uh, uh, been teaching here. Uh, the You know, the book, and maybe this is the case with everything I've written, but my ideas often come from experiences I've had in, in class or at church or with individuals. And uh, this one, uh, odds are you're going to be exalted, largely grew out of the fact that I, I ran into too many pessimistic Mormons. Uh, I, I remember how much uh, hope that the, uh, the gospel gave me in my conversion, and yet it seemed like an awful lot of Latter-day Saints uh, took a mentality that was... Uh, perhaps best described as just thinking, well, I, I, I'm LDS, so I hope I have a foot in the door. I just hope I make it. And it just felt wrong. And as I studied the teachings of the living prophets and the scriptures on the subject, it did not seem to me that we had reason to be pessimistic, but rather optimistic. And so that kind of led to uh, my sitting down at one point and saying, I, I want to flesh this out and see what the brethren have said on this and uh, whether or not our, our somewhat negative view, not, not as a church, but as individuals, that somewhat negative view might be erroneous. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I noticed that uh, in your book, you wrote it to your children that they might have hope. In the, I think in one of our initial conversations, when I approached you about doing this podcast, you asked me how this would help uh, the work of Fair Mormon as apologists. And my answer to that question is education. Education can be a strong defense against those who claim to know what the church teaches versus what we really teach. I think sometimes members believe in tradition and uh, common folklore as if it were scripture. And and when it comes to having hope, I see a lot of members with more guilt than hope. A am I off base here, or do I just need to take more medication? <laughs> well, you know, Elder uh, Nelson of the Twelve said, men are that they might have joy, not guilt trips. Uh, and, and I think you're correct. I, I think we uh, we sometimes don't have the amount of hope we ought to, and that implies that we don't get the atonement of Christ. Uh, and certainly I did dedicate this uh, this particular book to my kids because I don't want them thinking that salvation for them or exaltation is unlikely. Uh, I don't think that's the way to live your life. Uh, certainly not if you're a faith-filled uh, Latter-day Saint who has uh, 
uh, a belief in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. And so th- that certainly played a role in, in uh, why I wrote this. I-, I think sometimes, as you've pointed out, Latter-day Saints confuse folklore with doctrine. Um, we're perhaps sometimes culpable for the misunderstandings that people have about our, our beliefs or our doctrines. I remember back in, uh, I think it was April of 2000, President Hinckley in General Conference said, we are greatly misunderstood, and I fear that much of it is our own making. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true. Sometimes we grapple on to really silly ideas that are not doctrine, and, and who knows what the source is. Sometimes they're just popular for- folklore. Sometimes they're a, a misinterpretation of some quote, or they are a legitimate quote, but the quote was not a doctrine in the first place. It was someone's opinion. And we create a doctrine out of that. And and I think the place of uh, grace and works and salvation is a prime example of this in the church. Too many Latter-day Saints think they're saved by grace but exalted by their works. And I have to say, I remember as a, uh, a missionary only a year into the church when I left, so I, I was uh, naive in a number of ways. I remember teaching and other missionaries teaching this idea that, well, you're saved by grace. You know, Jesus will save you uh, as in resurrect you, but, but you're exalted based on your works. My heavens, if I were to go back now— I would absolutely not make that claim. Uh, I don't believe I have enough works to save myself or to exalt myself. My token gestures to God are exactly that, token gestures. I am so dependent and reliant upon the grace of Christ, as all of us are, that it, it is naive to somehow think uh, that we can work our way there. So I, I think you're correct. I, I think that uh, uh, non-Latter-day Saints, particularly those in the evangelical movement, often have misconceptions about the Latter-day Saint view of, of salvation and exaltation. Part of that is a misunderstanding of what we believe. Part of it is our own misrepresentation of our beliefs, where we may talk more about uh, works than we do about grace, and erroneously so. I think that's good. I noticed you uh, mentioned in your book um, a quote from Philippians 2.12. Does fear, we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But does fear and trembling really mean, in, in our language today, fear and trembling? Or does it mean respect and reverence for God and our sincere humility and gratitude for the Savior and his atoning sacrifice? Well, I think that's a good question. Um, I had a, uh, a young woman on the phone with me earlier today uh, before our uh, conversation, and uh, she and I were, were talking a little bit about Paul, and some, she quoted something from Paul, and I said, well, okay, wait a second. I mean, you're not quoting Jesus here. You're, you're quote, quoting something that Paul is saying to uh, some other member of the church. Let's have some context. Uh, and, and I guess I'd say with the Philippians 2.12, first of all, we remember these are Paul's words, not the Lord's words. Paul is counseling us in his view, and I don't have a problem with it, but he's counseling us in his, his view that we ought to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. But Paul, like each of us, has a personality and ways of phrasing things. Uh, that, that's my first point. The second one, I think, would be that uh, the Greek for fear and trembling certainly can, can be translated that way, but it can be can also be translated with equal propriety, uh, reverence or respect, and a sense of one's own inabilities. And so when you look at this in the Greek, you really get the uh, impression that Paul is kind of inviting us to trust grace rather than our own works. That when he says to work out your salvation with fear, or in other words, reverence and respect, and with trembling, or a sense of your inabilities, I don't think he's saying fear God. I think what he's saying is rely on God. Uh, don't trust on your own ability. And when you, when you trust your own ability, of course, you do quake. But when you realize it's, it's God whom you trust in, there's a sense of security that can come to you. Uh, as you seek to work out your salvation. And so I, I think your description of it as being reverence for God and sincere humility and gratitude is accurate. Uh, I think Paul has used a, a phrase, uh, perhaps even a colloquialism, that, that worked for him, but I don't know that it means as much in uh, 2014 uh, English. 
One of the uh, favorite uh, scriptures for apologists is uh, 1 Peter 3.15. Be ready always to give an answer to everyone that asks you a reason for the hope that is within you in meekness and fear. And what what meekness and fear is my understanding and what it really means is uh, kindness and patience for those you witness to and respect and reverence for Almighty God. Yeah. No, you're you're correct. Uh, we sometimes in apologetics can get uh, arrogant. Uh, when I first joined the church, I was pretty fascinated by apologetics. Uh, uh, my my family was somewhat antagonistic toward the church and and my conversion, and so I felt this need to defend. And so I started reading a lot of apologetic texts uh, defending the church. I remember one brother. I won't I won't say who it was. Uh, but but he made a comment in his review of the anti-Mormons. He said, anyone with the intellect of a, of a gnat would have known this was not the case. But of mm-hmm. course, none of, none of these people have the intellect of a gnat. <laughs> well, I, I laughed heartily at it. But then I remember thinking, oh, well, that's probably not a very Christian thing to say. I, I think ultimately you and I are, are called to, uh, uh, to give an answer and be ready to do so. But if we can't do that with meekness and with the love of Christ and a spirit of humility and a spirit of Christian civility – I think sometimes we become as bad as uh, the the adversary or the enemy or the person that's accosting us. And uh, I, I think there is danger when we engage in debate for the sake of debate as opposed to, oh, you sincerely are interested. I have a sincere response. But there need not be contention. Good. How, how about the scripture in Second Nephi twenty five twenty three where it says, For we know that it is grace that we are saved after all that we can do. If this is the case, who who can be saved? Because nobody ever does all that they can do. What if all we can do is to accept the Savior's atoning sacrifice? I, I think Brother uh, Robert Millett expressed this view. What do you think? Well, I think I think that's spot on. Uh, I think we tend to put the emphasis both as Latter-day Saints, but non-Latter-day Saints do this also. We tend to put the emphasis on the wrong portion of the phrase. Uh, We've traditionally said the emphasis is on all you can do. So I'll be saved by grace. God will step in and and take care of me. Jesus' atonement will work it out for me after I've done all I can. But as you point out, whoever does all they can. On my best day, I don't do all I can. Yeah. I, think, I think it was Steve Robinson, Stephen E. Robinson, who suggested that this phrase would be better put, after all you can do, you're yet saved by grace. And, and I think that's where the emphasis belongs. It's not on um, doing everything you can. It's on recognizing that after you've done everything, you're still dependent upon Christ. No matter how hard you try, it's the grace of Christ that will save you. Now, that doesn't mean that you, you don't have to do any works. Uh, certainly, the, uh, the early Christians uh, spoke over and over again about this. And I remember in uh, uh, J.N.D. Kelly's book, Early Christian Doctrines, he points out, that the early Christian, Christian perspective was that your works allow you to lay a hold on God's grace. They, they vouchsafe God's grace for you, but they don't earn it. I think uh, our non-Latter-day Saints, when they read the Book of Mormon, often misinterpret this passage and what it's saying. But I think sometimes Latter-day Saints miss it also. And they honestly see in these words in Second uh, Nephi 25 a statement that you better do everything you can before God will do anything for you. Uh, that misrepresents the Book of Mormon. It misrepresents the doctrine of grace, but it misrepresents the nature of God and Christ, who are first and foremost uh, loving and holy beings. Yeah, I, I agree with that. One of the things that uh, Brad Wilcox says, that uh, evangelicals come up to him and says, are you saved by grace? And he goes, yes. And then he asks them, have you been changed by grace? We're changed to do good works, and the good works are a natural consequence of who we're becoming 
uh, through the efforts of the Holy Ghost working in us. Absolutely. I I don't want to misrepresent anybody here, but let me tell you a true story. This is not indicative of any religious tradition. Um, I was on a train traveling uh, to uh, Oxford, and uh, I was a missionary at the time, and my companion was on the train also. And my companion began to play chess with a man who was sitting next to us who was not interested in the church but had a portable chess chess set with him. So uh, I got out the Book of Mormoners reading. We stopped at a stop and then began again, and a woman got on. And proceeded to walk up and down the aisle of our car to not sit down as the train moved. She seemed to be looking at people like she was trying to make eye contact. Well, I noticed her because she was, she was dressed a little bit uh, uniquely. And so I started to watch her. And at one point, we made eye contact. And, and when she uh, sensed that that eye contact was there, she kind of uh, leaned into me and said, Are you saved? And I opened my trench coat to point to my name tag, my missionary tag, and said, I sure am. Sit down. <laughs> uh, so we got into the conversation, and uh, it invariably uh, it steered toward grace and works. And she said, My problem with you Mormons is you think you work your way to heaven. I don't believe works play any role in salvation. And I said, Really? And asked her to expound on it. And ultimately, she said this, and I quote, she said, I could kill you and throw your body off this train and let it get mangled under the wheels of the train, and I would still go to heaven. And I said, sister, that is too good to be true. Where do I sign up? <laughs> now, I don't think that the average evangelical believes that. Certainly the average Roman Catholic doesn't believe that. Uh, the average uh, Eastern Orthodox, the tradition I was raised in, doesn't believe or teach that. Though I have met individuals over the years who have taken that position. And so sometimes there is that that, uh, sense that works are not important in this process. If one is completely honest, one has to acknowledge the New Testament requires faith of us and works of us. Uh, I just concluded reading the New Testament in my personal study, and uh, a number of times in the book of Revelation, the statement is made that the books were open and people were judged based on their works as recorded in the books in heaven. And, And I think it would be naive to say that works do not play a role, but I don't believe they're salvific again. I think they allow us to access God's grace. They are our token gestures to say, Lord, I love you. Father, I love you. And, and this is what I can offer. And in return, he pours out more than we deserve. Good. I like that. See, in your book, it's divided into seven uh, chapters. Uh, the role of the commandments, a plan that will maximize returns, the doctrine of sanctification, vicarious work for the dead, what of the straight and narrow path, when a loved one strays, and uh, the conclusion. Rather than go through each chapter in detail, how about giving us a brief synopsis of each? What is the role of the commandments in our lives? Uh, Well, let's see if I can do this in a way that doesn't just lose the reader or lose the listener and confuse everybody. I think we tend to uh, picture, uh, as uh, Latter-day Saints, the the Grand Council in Heaven this way. And, And tell me if I'm not making sense. We picture Heavenly Father and and Jehovah perhaps standing next to him as he introduces the plan to all of us gathered together in some large, uh, spacious location. Maybe Heavenly Mother is sitting in an easy chair, uh, a plush chair right next to him. And Heavenly Father says, you know, kids, I've got got good news and bad news. The good news is Mother and I have come up with a plan whereby you can become like us, you can become gods, you can can, uh, be exalted and uh, live with us for eternity. Uh, the bad news is we'll never see but two-tenths of one percent of you ever again. And the sons of God shout out for joy. Yay! You know, uh, no, it didn't go that way. We, we, we don't want to believe that's the case. But our, our fear uh, uh, and our lack of trusting in God's grace, our, our feeling that if I don't keep the commandments perfectly, I'm somehow going to be damned, almost implies that. Well, you and I know that's not the way it worked. Frankly, not only would Heavenly Father not do that, if he tried to, you know Heavenly Mother would jump up and say, Elohim, we're not doing that. Sit down. <laughs> that's you know, right. She, she, I agree. She would, yeah. She would not go for that. I, I, I think uh, if you 
and, and again, maybe I'm not answering your question properly uh, as we go through things like the role of commandments, but forgive me for a, an excursus and I can just try and make this point. But when you think about what God or whom God has promised will be exalted, that in itself kind of gives you a sense of the role of commandments, how it is the plan will maximize returns. Uh, as a singular example, we know that those who die prior to the age of accountability will be exalted. Uh, and, and, and how many people have died before the age of accountability? Well, we have no way to keep track. Statistics have only been kept since about the early 1500s. But let me just throw out a few numbers as an example, uh, Ned. Uh, in 1910, for example, in the United States alone, 10% of babies died before their first birthday. Not before their eighth, but before their first. Yeah. Uh, 1970, 15% of all children across the globe, uh, globe decide, died before their uh, fifth birthday. Uh, in as early as 19, or as late as 1970 in Sierra Leone, they had a 36% infant mortality rate. Still 28% in 2004 in that nation. Hmm. Um, uh, insane numbers. I remember President John Taylor saying more than half of all of the human family have died before the age of accountability. More than half. I mean, that's incomprehensible. And yet, doctrinally, we talk about all of them being exalted uh, if they die before the age of accountability. You've got the mentally disabled uh, uh, who have the capacity of less than a child or as a child. That again, a very large number of individuals, many more in the past, who are guaranteed exaltation. Uh, those who have been translated, like the city of Enoch, uh, the cities of Melchizedek, the, the Nephites during the Golden Age, uh, hundreds of millions of people all translated that are guaranteed exaltation. Uh, we know that during the millennium, Satan will be bound increasing numbers of ex- exaltation. I remember Elder McConkie saying, and I think also Elder Maxwell, that more people will live during the millennium than have lived on the earth in all of the previous ages combined, and yet all of these are growing up uh, unto salvation without sin, uh, without the influence of Satan in their lives. Uh, you have the doctrine of the spirit world and the fact that most people get the gospel there instead of here on, uh, on earth. And yet numerous general authorities have taught that very few people there reject it. President Wilford Woodruff said very few, if any, reject the gospel there. President Lorenzo Snow said the percentage of folks who accept the gospel in the spirit world is far greater than it is uh, in the missionary work here in mortality. Uh, President Snow went on to say that very few will not gladly receive it when it's carried to them there. The circumstances there will be a thousand times more favorable than they are here on the earth. And so when you look at the number of people that are going to be exalted based on what the uh, Latter-day Prophets have taught, what Latter-day Scripture teaches us, um, it, it, it makes no sense to think that God would exalt 96% of his children that could to go because of this scenario we've described and then say, oh, wait, there, there are 4 or 5% of you that are going to have a really difficult task. And so clearly you have a, a doctrine whereby the plan of salvation is designed to maximize returns, minimize losses. The plan works. And as Brigham Young said, if you don't make it to the celestial kingdom, it's because it isn't because it was too hard. It's because you didn't desire it. So you ask, well, what's the role of commandments in our lives? Well, I think the role of commandments are not about God trying to damn or save us. I think about, they're about growth. They're about learning, safety, happiness. We tend to paint this picture that God is uh, somehow trying to weed out all the bad folks as though he doesn't know who's good or bad or who would be faithful or who wouldn't. And it may be a bit colloquial, but I don't think that's largely what this is about. I remind, I'm reminded of a statement Elder Holland made in conference, but he kind of paraphrased it slightly differently when he was out at Stanford one day. He said, God is not like an umpire who's trying to call you out at home plate. He's more like the third base coach uh, who's urging you on. You know, when you, you, hit, you hit a ball out into the field, you can see uh, where the ball is uh, at first base and, and second base. But as you round second base, you look at your third base coach and you trust in the guy. And he either tells you, okay, hold up, hold up, hold up as you're heading to third base because you can't look over your shoulder to see if, uh, if uh, the outfielder's got the ball and he's throwing it in. He either tells you to hold up or he says, go, 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 go. And then when he tells you to go, you go. 
you go, you trust what he's saying, That's and right. you, you run with all of your might. God, our Father, is more like that third base coach. He's not, as we sometimes uh, mentally depict, this person that's just waiting for some infraction of the law, some breaking of the commandment to call us out. He's trying to help us to learn. He's trying to develop us. He's trying to make us holy like he is holy. But, but I do not think it's fair to say that commandments are largely about are you going to make it or are you not because none of us keep all of the commandments all the time. God is giving us experiences to uh, uh, have safety. And the commandments give us that. To have happiness, the commandments give us that. To have growth and learning, and the commandments give us that both when we're obedient, but they also give us that when we're disobedient because we experience from the back end the pain and the sorrow and the challenges that come through disobedience. And that in itself is a gift from God. I think that's a great answer. You know, I had one of my uh, grandkids uh, once uh, talking to me about uh, their parents, my children, and I said, you know, they're, they're not trying to tell you what to do so they can control you. They're trying to give you these things and ideas to protect you, to give you growth and give you safety and give you happiness in life. Yeah, my my wife has a phrase she likes to use with our kids, and that is this. She'll say to them, "Uh, trust me, your father and I have already made this wrong choice. It didn't work out. You know, don't go down the road. Just trust our experience. But, you know, kids have to have those experiences. Uh, Some people don't learn except on the back end. All of us are sometimes like that. And so we, we have to have those challenges. Good. So I think that pretty much explains the plan that the God made that maximizes returns. How do we understand the – okay, go well, on. Can go I on. just parenthetically add this? Sure. But, you know, I, I don't want to be bearing my testimony on, uh, on a podcast here. But, sure but let you me do. Say this. <laughs> I, I just have to say, Latter-day Saints, please be cautious. Uh, we've got to believe when God introduced this plan – uh, when Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother uh, uh, introduced to us a plan that had gone on for eternity and will go on for eternity, that we had the confidence and the belief that this was something that would save, would exalt the vast majority. None of us would have been excited about sustaining a plan wherein we thought this was such a dangerous crapshoot that the odds of us making it back were statistically minimal. Uh, we firmly believed in the pre-mortal world. This was functional. It was likely. It was doable that you and I had every likelihood that we would make it, uh, that there was not pessimism there, uh, that it really was a plan that would maximize returns. And I think sometimes we miss that. We, we forget that. Uh, it could not have been any other way, and God would not do it any other way. Good. I, I think that's true. Well, what's a good explanation of how we understand the doctrine of sanctification? Well, you know, uh, Elder Bruce R. McConkie uh, said that the Spirit will not dwell in an unclean tabernacle. Of course, he's drawing on uh, Holy Writ for that. But he said, therefore, when men receive the Spirit of God, they become clean and pure and spotless. Uh, he pointed out that if you get a priesthood blessing and you're healed from sickness in that priesthood blessing, you are also sanctified and healed spiritually so that you're no longer guilty of sin because the Spirit can't dwell in an unclean tabernacle. And since healing comes through the Holy Spirit— He says, so also sanctification will necessarily come. And his basic point was that whenever you and I have actively in our lives the Holy Spirit, when we're feeling it actively, we know we're being prompted, guided, inspired, comforted, etc., then we know we're acceptable to God and we're being sanctified because the Spirit has that influence. I I think it's 2 Nephi 31, 17, where it talks about how a sanctification— remission of sins comes by fire and by the Holy Ghost. Again, I remember Elder McConkie saying, and I'm not trying to be uh, quoting one source constantly, but uh, he spoke a lot about this. Uh, He said that we we remit sins symbolically in baptism, but the actual remission comes when we receive the gift of the Holy Ghost and it purges out those sins. And, And certainly the thing you're promised in the sacramental prayer through renewal of covenants is that you may always have his spirit to be with you. Why? 
because it sanctifies you. It burns out sin. And so if you and I are living in such a way that we can have the Holy Spirit with us, if we are feeling the Spirit regularly in our lives, I would hope daily, but if not daily, every few days, certainly weekly, because we're reading our scriptures, we're having conversations with God, we're seeking a life of holiness, we're, we're going to the temple, we're, we're engaging and ministering and reaching out to others. If we're doing that, then the testimony of the holy apostles and prophets is this, that we will have his spirit to be with us, and when that spirit is with us, sin cannot remain in us because it burns it out. And so really, frankly, the truth is, salvation and exaltation are pretty simple. Do things that provoke the Holy Ghost, and if you do that, God's spirit will be with you, and you will be clean and purified and acceptable before the Lord. And in addition to that, you will be changed as a being because the spirit doesn't simply sanctify you in the sense of burning away sin, though it does that. It also works on who you are. It, it, it douses the flame of the natural man. It weakens its hold on you. It gives you the desire to do good, to be good, to live a holy and a loving and a forgiving and a grace-filled life. I have believed this uh, for many years that if I perceive God as judgmental and angry and unforgiving and unhappy with me, uh, it's probably because uh, I, I am unrighteous or I'm living the way I ought to. But if I project it on other people, if I treat other people judgmentally uh, in an unforgiving and unchrist way, Christ-like way, that's likely because that's my perception of God. And so in other words, what I'm saying is that if we, if we recognize God for what he is, if we recognize the power of the Spirit to sanctify us, we tend to see God as forgiving and loving, uh, filled with grace and mercy, and we tend to be that way toward other people. You follow what I mean? Yeah, I think, that, I think that's a great explanation. Sanctification is a process where the Holy Ghost works through us over time to purge us, and the quality of our character improves, and our behavior starts to reflect that sanctification process. Yeah, well put, well put. What about the uh, vicarious work for the dead? There are some who say that those who have passed beyond the veil can't progress until they've had their temple work done for them. It doesn't make sense to me that they should be held back because their paperwork has not been completed on this side of the veil. (laughs) What do you think about that? Let's hope the Lord does not hold them accountable for our slothfulness. You know, you certainly have that uh, that statement in Paul and and, uh, then again in the uh, Doctrine and Covenants twice, I believe, where we we learn that we cannot be saved without our dead nor our dead without us. I, I think there is an interdependence. There is no question. Uh, I certainly think people on the other side of the veil need to make covenants in order to be authorized to do the Lord's work. Uh, But I am not convinced uh, that they're bound by the same time restrictions that we are. Uh, The Lord certainly is not going to allow you and I and our slothfulness here to hinder his work there. Uh, How he works out all those uh, details, uh, I frankly do not know, nor does it really concern me. I mean, I trust him implicitly. But I think you may be right in the sense that uh, we sometimes uh, picture everybody working on some time frame that's akin to ours, and they're waiting for us to do something before they can do anything. Uh, I believe that God lives outside the space-time continuum, uh, as the Doctrine and Covenant states. As Elder Maxwell pointed out, God has past, present, and future before him at all times. And so uh, the the rate at which I'm able to move here as a convert to uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as an individual who's working on his family history work basically alone because my family members uh, have not converted to the gospel, uh, I have tens of thousands of names that I'm aware of. Uh, that are in my family line currently uh, that I've found uh, with uh, the assistance of uh, some uh, good brethren uh, that I'm doing the work on. 
Uh, if God is going to damn all of those people because of the rate at which I'm able to get this done or the rate at which people here in Utah are able to get it done on their behalf, uh, well, that doesn't seem very fair. So I, I'm sure he's got a, a, a means of working this out, though I must admit I do not understand how all of that works any better than I understand how he hears our prayers or how the atonement works. Good. Yeah, I, I agree with that. How, how about the uh, straight and narrow way? What, what exactly does that mean? Well, you know, in Matthew 7, Jesus is quoted as saying, straight is the gate and narrows the way, and, uh, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. I think, I think that's the way it's phrased uh, in Matthew. We've interpreted that sometimes, meaning members sometimes interpret that to mean that, man, very few people find exaltation. Very few people make it back to the kingdom of God. Of course, I don't think Jesus' words about the straight and narrow path need to be taken that way. I don't think they're intended that way. I think they must be taken in the greater context of the whole plan of salvation, meaning you can strip those out of their context and simply say, uh, Jesus is saying it, it's hard to, to be saved. Uh, again, I would question that whether that resonates with the, the character of God or Christ. Uh, and so I think sometimes we take it out of context to imply that, but I don't think that's what he's saying. When Jesus said, few there be that find it, meaning few there be that find the path back to God, he clearly wasn't saying few children who die prior to the age of accountability find it because we've already shown that's not the case. And we've already suggested that statistics show that well over half of all human beings fall into that category. And yet they've clearly found the path in the spirit world. He clearly wasn't saying those who are mentally disabled couldn't find it. Uh, so that, that can't be the intention. He wasn't addressing those who received the gospel for the first time in the spirit world, which is almost everybody who lives. Mm -hmm. because So he couldn't be talking about them. He's not referring to the hundreds of millions who are translated. So in other words, what I'm trying to say is Christ's comment doesn't apply to the vast majority of his creations. He's talking to an audience. He has people that he's speaking to. It doesn't apply to all of these other groups that make up 90-some percent of God's creations. I think his comment uh, is really speaking about those in mortality, few, that, few find the path here. I don't think he's saying few that ever find it or few get exalted because that contradicts everything that the, uh, the brethren have taught about this. Those quotes that I bring up in my book, uh, Odds Are You Going to Be Exalted. It may be uh, that Jesus is simply saying that there are very few, a very small number, a select group of individuals who encounter the fullness of the gospel and mortality prayerfully receive a confirming witness that it's true, uh, are confronted with the question, should I join or not, and then act on that. Meaning, I think it's to those people the Lord's speaking. He's speaking to people who run into the missionaries, who are taught by the missionaries or members, who are taught in such a way that they can feel the Spirit, who recognize the Spirit, uh, who then say, oh my gosh, it's telling me it's true, what should I do? That, that really narrows the numbers around because the missionaries don't encounter the vast majority of human beings on the face of the earth. What do we have? 80,000 missionaries out right now as I understand it. 80,000 in a world that has 7 billion, billion people, inhabitants. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and so it is true that very few find the path in mortality. But according to what the modern prophets and apostles said, it is not true that very few find it in the spirit world. And so it is to that few that find it in mortality, the Lord is, uh, Lord's command is uh, having meaning, uh, that it provokes accountability. For all others, it's impossible to obey the command to enter ye in at the straight gate because they'll only be introduced to that straight gate in uh, the spirit world via receipt of the gospel message mm -hmm. uh, and via vicarious baptism for the dead. So uh, I've got a colleague here at BYU who has said to me several times, he thinks it, it means straight is the gate and narrows the way that, and few there be that find it in this life. But he, he emphatically argues against, and I agree with him, that Christ is saying few that uh, there be that ever find it. John speaks in the book of Revelation about the innumerable concourses of people who surround the throne of God in the celestial kingdom. Uh, uh, Lehi talks about the innumerable uh, concourses of people pressing toward the tree and reaching the tree. Uh, baptism is the gate. 
Uh, and uh, while not many find it here in mortality, many, 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 and if the brethren are right, and I think they are, the vast majority will find it in the spirit world and embrace that. And so uh, I think, again, we've, we've stripped Christ's teaching out of context, suggesting it's implying to a child who dies at one years old. Well, nonsense. It certainly can't apply to that child. Uh, it's talking to a select few. Good. I agree. Well, when someone we love chooses to follow another path, how should we respond and what about those who come home early from a mission because of a problem? Wow. Well, um, if, if you're a parent and a child strays, and this is going to be easier for me to say this than for some people to do it, but it, it, it may, again, be uh, evidence of our weakness and our provincial uh, uh, nature. Uh, if you've got a child or family member strays, uh, first and foremost, uh, what do you do? Well, if you love them, you have to remember God loves them a thousand times more than you. Uh, if they've strayed, then apparently they're struggling with some aspect of their faith. But if, if you stress about the fact that they're straying, then clearly you're also struggling with some aspect of, of your faith. And so I, my first invitation would be to, to trust in God and believe that he knows what he's doing. We, we worry. Oh, we worry. And I suppose rightfully so. But we, we worry instantaneously when we see some sign of doubt or struggle. A child asks a question about the gospel. Uh, my son texted me this morning from a seminary. Uh, how do you explain this? My teacher just said this. What, what's the explanation for it? You know, we, we can have a couple ways to respond. Oh, my heavens, is my son worrying about his faith? Is he, is he having doubts? Or is he just simply inquiring intellectually about something he sees that doesn't make sense? And so you explain it. But my point is this. We've got to believe. We've got to trust and not get freaked out when people have questions or even when people have doubts or they stray a bit. Uh, trust God. Know that he knows what he's doing. And, and realize the plan is largely about learning and being developed. As Elder Maxwell said, it's about being developed in time and about God giving us the customized curriculum of mortality. And that customized curriculum of mortality sometimes requires that you and I experience some hard knocks. And so if someone is choosing a harder road, they're choosing to stray. Yes, they may lose some blessings. They may lose some powerful experiences because of their choices. Though, frankly, in trials, you often have great opportunities for growth and development that you wouldn't have otherwise. But that no, in no way suggests that all is lost. We need to trust. We need to believe. We need to love. We need to forgive. And we need to have as much faith in God and his plan and his ability to redeem them as we're asking them to have when we tell them don't stray. I mean, when we say don't stray, have faith, trust – but then you and I have all of this stress and doubt and lack of faith when they don't do what they ought to. Now, what if somebody comes home from a mission? Well, you know, I think that's, that's unfortunate. Uh, it, it is painful. Uh, and uh, you wish that that didn't happen. But sometimes our overreaction when that happens actually does more damage than good because they're uncomfortable. They know they've upset family. They've embarrassed family. So what do they do? They want to get away from the ward. They want to get away from the people they've embarrassed or hurt. So they end up leaving and going inactive. Uh, the best thing we could do when that happens is to rally around and nurture and love and say, hey, you know what? It's okay. You're going to be all right. You'll make it through this. Uh, and let them know they're not being judged, but they are being loved like the Lord would love them. If we respond as the world responds, we do harm. If we respond as the Lord would respond, and they truly feel sincere love for us and acceptance by us, uh, they're going to be okay. So we've got to be careful about this knee-jerk reaction, and we've got to be careful that we don't exhibit the same measure of a lack of faith that the person who's straying has exhibited. Uh, by our not trusting in God, they are his children first and foremost. And again, as I said, when you first asked the question, if I love my kids or if I love this individual, God loves them infinitely more than I do. He's going to take care of them. I should not stress. I just need to be, need to be holy and loving toward them. 
Good. I think that's a great response. So, I, you know, I, I really appreciate the work you have done in this book. It, it kind of reminds me of uh, Stephen Robinson's book, Believing Christ, and the teachings of Brad Wilcox. His grace is sufficient. Any uh, any comments on the works of these men in relation to, to your book regarding being saved, or as you put it, odds are you're going to be exalted? Well, uh, the only comment I'd have is this. I mean, I appreciate what both of them have done. I think Stephen E. Robinson did something very important uh, when he wrote Believing Christ. Uh, that book uh, really opened the door for a new stage in uh, Latter-day Saint soteriology and in Latter-day Saint understanding of salvation. And I frankly think Steve was inspired. You know, he's one of my colleagues here at BYU. I have the greatest respect for the man. Uh, what a wonderful time in the history of the church for you and I to be alive when there are such opp- opportunities to understand the Lord's love and the Lord's atonement. And so I'm grateful for these men, and I'm particularly grateful for Steve Robinson because he really was one of the first voices uh, in uh, Latter-day Saint circles to, uh, in an outspoken way, say, you know what, we need to talk about grace. Uh, I I joined the church in an era when we were a bit more works-oriented. It wasn't that we denied grace at the atonement by any means, but we talked more heavily about works. And I think part of that was this. I mean, in, in defense of the brethren, let me say this. We run a risk uh, in Mormonism or in any religion. If you preach uh, grace, grace, grace all the time, uh, you, you run the risk of having a, uh, a flock of people, uh, of parishioners, who are so laissez-faire about uh, their holiness that they end up causing Christianity or the church harm. Michael Hart wrote a book back in, I think it was the late 70s, early 80s, called The 100, The 100 Most Influential People in the History of the World. And Michael Hart puts Jesus at like number three or number four. But Hart was a Christian. And he says in there, look, I'd have no problem putting Jesus number one if Christians actually follow the teachings of Christ. But when you look at, and he's not LDS, he's just a a non-Latter-day Saint Christian, I don't know what denomination, I don't know if he's Catholic or Protestant, but he said, "Uh, look, I look at Christians, people of my own faith, and I realize most of us really don't live up to the teachings and the commandments of Jesus. Therefore, I have to assume Jesus really wasn't that influential. And so the problem the brethren have been put in, the paradox that they've been forced in is this. If they preach grace too much, you run the risk of having Latter-day Saints who don't live very saintly lives. They become saints without halos. If, on the other hand, you preach works too much, you have a bunch of people that uh, that need medication to handle the... the, Well, you know what I'm saying. I do. I I hear what you're saying. And and so I, I think it is a fine line, and I think they've tried to walk that and walk that appropriately. But I do believe in the last, say, two decades... We have uh, certainly continued to hear uh, talks on the atonement of Christ and talks on repentance, but we've, we've woven into that discourse more frequently the doctrine of God's love, his grace, his mercy, uh, and, and this concept that his grace is sufficient. And uh, for me, I think it is a beautiful time to be alive in Latter-day Saint history because that message is more uh, prevalent and more common. You know, the, the, the title, Odds Are You're Going to Be Exalted, uh, was not designed to be uh, hyperbole. When I sent the manuscript into a desert book, I said to uh, the uh, the brother who was at that time serving as the acquisition guy, I want to give you a manuscript called Odds Are You're Going to Be Exalted, Evidence of the Plan of Salvation Works, but I'll only give the uh, the manuscript to Desert Book if you guarantee I can use that title. And uh, he said, well, I'll have to check with Sherry Do on that. And he came back and he said, well, Sherry says you can use it as long as that's what it's really about. Hmm. Um, but from my mind, uh, or to my mind, my intent was this. I wanted somebody to see that title and say, what in the world? I, I need to know about this. Yeah. Because this book is really a testimony uh, for me. It is my testimony of, of God's grace, God's mercy, God's love. And that we are fortunate as Latter-day Saints because 
we have a plan of salvation that God has received, uh, revealed through prophets, ancient and modern, that bears witness that this plan works, that it will save us, that we have cause to rejoice, uh, that God is good and gracious and loving and merciful to us, and that in the end, this is all going to work out. Uh, and, and I thank uh, folks like Steve Robinson for kind of opening the door so that that, uh, that discourse or that dialogue could be uh, more prevalent in the church today. Uh, I think the brethren are in a different situation because they have to walk that line finally. Uh, but I think Brother Robinson did something as it relates to Larry St. Literature that had not been done up to that point, and I'm grateful for it. Yeah, I agree. Uh, when I was, uh, before his book came out, I kind of believed those things, and I tried to talk about those principles, and people would look at me like I had lobsters coming out my ears. Yeah. Oh, I know. I know. I, I've been there. You know. So the you know the the um, yeah, the Bruce R. McConkie era of uh, very strict, very um, disciplined. You do A, B, C, and you get uh, X, Y, Z, and it was, life was almost kind of mechanical. So. Well, you know what Elder McConkie said was absolutely true. Uh, he didn't discuss publicly as much uh, this issue of grace, but I think he was right. There is something provocative about obedience, and and it does provoke God's grace. But here's the bizarre thing: as I was writing, odds are you can be ex- you're going to be exalted. I was shocked at how often I found statements by Bruce R. McConkie that seemed to be different than what you often heard from the pulpit, meaning he wrote and talked a lot, including near the end of his life, about God's grace, about the number of people that were going to be saved, uh, talking to groups uh, of hundreds of people where he'd say, it is my firm belief that every person in this room is not simply going to be saved but exalted. And you're thinking, this doesn't seem to be the pound the pulpit, uh, hellfire and damnation Bruce R. McConkie that a lot of us associate with him. He taught the principle, but he taught it at different times and in different places. And sometimes we have uh, separated Elder McConkie's teachings on works from his teachings on grace. And, and he looked like a hellfire and damnation guy. Uh, there was a soft side to Bruce R. McConkie that sometimes we've missed. And I, I, I quote a fair amount of it in the book to just help people realize uh, somebody as conservative as Bruce R. McConkie was, somebody as black and white as Bruce R. McConkie was, still got – that you and I were reliant upon the grace of Christ and uh, that God had a plan that would save billions of people, not just hundreds or thousands. And I, that's great. I have a, have a personal story about uh, Brother McConkie. Uh, I went to a state conference one time, a long time ago, in a stake far, far away, and uh, he was the visiting general authority. So I got there early. I wanted to be able to hear what he had to say. And uh, he was there at the door handing out programs. And I, yeah. did, I didn't realize how big he was. He's like what, six, 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 seven. He, he, he was, was tall. He was a big man. And then uh, all, we, we went and sat down, and all of a sudden it's five minutes to the meeting starts, and no BRM. And then two minutes before, and he's not there. Ten o'clock in the morning, meeting's supposed to start. No Bruce R. McConkie. Nobody from the stake presence gets up to start. Minutes go by. And everyone's getting nervous. And I realized, I looked at the clock seven minutes after the meeting was supposed to start. Here comes Bruce R. McConkie with all these people that he had gotten out of the four-year. And, and he just literally shepherded them, brought them in, and made sure each one of them had a seat. And then they were fine and taken care of. Now, Wonderful. I'll, I'll, never, I'll never remember anything anybody said during that meeting but I'll never forget what he did and the example that he showed. Yeah. I love the man. I love him. Yeah, it's good. Well, do you have any uh, closing uh, remarks here, Brother Gaskell? Uh, do we have time for one quick story? Sure. 
before I wrote this book, and this was kind of the thing that pushed me over the edge, I, uh, I was living in California, uh, uh, Stanford, California, Palo Alto, and uh, I was out here in Utah uh, over a week. I think I was here for Education Week or something like that. And so I was attending a high priest group in a, uh, a ward in Orem, Utah. Um, it was not my ward. Uh, I was just a visitor. We were at that time uh, studying the Joseph F. Smith Manual in a priesthood. And uh, the lesson that week happened to be on the salvation of little children. And uh, the manual, uh, in the manual, President Smith talked about how all children who die prior to the age of accountability are saved in the celestial kingdom of God. He's, he's uh, quoting the Doctrine and Covenants, obviously, and uh, stated that uh, they would all be exalted. Well, a brother raises his hand, uh, a faithful, active high priest, man probably in his 60s, maybe 70s, but, uh, and he raises his hand and says, you've you got to be kidding me. I mean, I'm having a hard time believing here that with the insane number of kids that have died before the age of accountability, all of them are going to be exalted. Well, then I, I'm shocked by this. And then another brother raises his hand and says, yeah, I too have to agree with uh, brother so-and-so. This strikes me as unfair. I mean, here you and I are required to live here 60, 70, 80 years. These kids are here one, two, three, eight years, and they're all guaranteed exaltation and haven't had to do any of this, and yet we're stuck here. How fair is that? Well, and, you know, I hear I'm a visitor, but shooting off my mouth. And so I raised my hand and called these two brethren to repentance and said, you have got to be kidding me. This ought to be cause to rejoice. You and I ought to be overwhelmed by the blessing of the knowledge that God has saved and exalted millions upon millions upon millions of babies. And you're grousing because as a 65-year-old man, you're still on the earth. What is the matter with you? It, it shocked me that anybody would think that that was a bad thing rather than a sign that this plan works, that it's beautiful, that God loves us, and that these things are going to work out, and that if he's done that for them, surely he has a salvation designed for you and I. Now, I'm sure I offended these uh, two brothers. I'm not sure I didn't mind that, meaning uh, to some degree I wanted them to be a little bit shaken uh, by my, my reproof that they would be angry that God would save these kids and then instead of rejoicing in it. I, I, I'm grateful for the time. You, you've been kind to take the, uh, uh, the time to be with me and to give me the opportunity to discuss the book. Uh, I bear witness the principles are true. You know, our Father in Heaven loves us. Uh, we, we had cause to rejoice in the preexistence, and we have cause to rejoice here in mortality because of the things that, that we know, uh, because of the restored gospel, because of the plan of salvation, because of living prophets and apostles who help us to see more clearly that the odds are in our favor and that God has designed a plan whereby you and I, with frankly uh, pretty token gestures, uh, can reside with him and uh, reside with our Savior for time and all eternity because of what they have done, not because of what we do. And uh, I, I will, uh, uh, for the rest of my life, and I suppose throughout eternity, praise God uh, for uh, the great things he has done and uh, perhaps feel sorrow for how little I accomplished on, on behalf of him. Well, thank you, sir. I, uh, I think this has been time well spent, at least for me. Did, uh, did you have a good time? Well, it was certainly better than any root canal I've had. I can say that. <laughs> oh, I feel complimented. There you go. <laughs> uh, and as always, the uh, views and opinions expressed in these podcasts may not represent those of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or that of Fair Mormon. Thank you for your time. We appreciate it. Mm -hmm.